When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined via Google Hangout again by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? How you holding up? Oh, doing the best I can. How about you, Leslie? Well, today would have been opening day across Major League Baseball, so I'm a little bummed, but I have a Dodger shirt on under my tracksuit, and uh, they're with me in spirit. And uh, I'm imagining Kirsch going out on the bump and throwing a great game and getting a big W, so... Have you still been watching vintage retro games, or or is that too painful now? Um, I listen to Vin Scully clips here and there when I need to pick me up. Um, <laughs> we've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine pretty much every night in a bid to kind of just keep the laughter coming. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. There there are days where it's it's very hard to stay positive, especially when you're reporting out stories about the future of our business and we, no one really knows. I, I have a recommendation that involves a baseball-themed comedy that, that you could be watching at any time, Leslie. Yes, Dan, it's on my radar. I, I will get there. I, I have a lot of time coming. I'm, I, I understand. So. Uh, we all do. I'm referring, of course, to Brockmire, which you can Brockmire. all watch final season now airing on IFC. But yes, uh, as you say, everything is topsy-turvy again, though there actually are some headlines this week, which is nice. There are, and that's called the transition. In this week's headlines, AMC has handed out a series order to a musical anthology called National Anthem from the screenwriter behind Contagion, Scott Z. Burns. Phew, I mean, you figure that half of the world has been watching Contagion nonstop for the past couple of weeks and someone must have just said, hey, let's give them a TV show. Except that this has been in development for long before a very long this time, all yes. happened. Two years as I understand it. Well... And what a time to announce it. Uh, also in headlines, Netflix is bringing back a number of its unscripted breakouts, handing two season renewals to Love is Blind and The Circle, while picking up a second season of the musical competition series Rhythm and Flow and ordering a new series from organizational genius Marie Kondo. And it is called, of course, Sparking Joy. This is all kind of funny because for a long time we talked about how much difficulty Netflix was having breaking into the reality space. And suddenly, apparently, they are no longer having that difficulty. Yes. And we should also note that while these these are all formal renewals and or and new series orders, nothing has been produced yet. And of course, it is at the mercy of when it, it is going to be considered safe to go back to work. So much more coming once it's safe to get the cameras rolling again. But they are all casting. So there's that. In scheduling changes, speaking of, of delays, AMC has pushed back the launch of its third Walking Dead scripted show to later this year. 
and announced that the current 10th season of the flagship series was unable to finish post-production on a VFX-heavy finale, and the finale will air later this year at a date to be determined. Um, NBC has also pulled a pandemic-themed episode of New York set medical drama New Amsterdam. And if you're interested in Walking Dead, we should also note that this past Sunday was Denai Guerrera's last episode of the show. We have a ton of coverage at THR.com slash Walking Dead, including an interview with Guerrera. I, for some reason, have not felt up to watching The Walking Dead lately, so it's all piling up on my DVR, but I assume someday I might feel that inkling again. Uh, In slightly better news, peppier news, world-moving-forward news, a lot of the late-night shows are getting back to work, uh, largely, of course, remotely, and in upcoming weeks we're going to have the triumphant returns of James Corden and Conan O'Brien and Jesus and Mero, yay. And people have been getting back to this slowly. I've been enjoying the past couple days of shows from Trevor Noah, the social distancing daily show, which he's been doing from his apartment. But it's felt a little bit like the show itself. He's had correspondents come in via Skype. He's done the headlines. It is still a little bit unnerving slash eerie to see all of the comic rhythms with absolutely nobody laughing or responding to anything. On the other hand, I personally appreciate the comedic perspective on the news and having it back because heaven knows, uh, yeah, we've been missing it. Uh, And of course, Seth Meyers did a closer look from home, which I thought was terrific and very, very funny. So, you know, this is not in any way to say that anything is getting back to normal. But people, when it's possible to find workarounds, are finding workarounds. And, you know, we will have much more conversation on this subject in this week's Showrunner Spotlight. So stay tuned. Yes. And wrapping up headlines, Netflix has ordered 40 episodes of a short form animated Angry Birds show that is geared at kids. And we'll have more on the animation space later in this episode. So with all that out of the way, Dan, let's get into this week's top five. Number one. Up first this week. Guess what? It's coronavirus themed. This week, the International Olympic Committee officially postponed the Summer Olympics. A new date has yet to be determined, though organizers say it will take place by summer of 2021 at the latest. While not unexpected, this does have larger implications in our world at NBC Universal, which carries the games because they were set to peg the launch of Peacock to the Olympics. So, Leslie, let's talk about Peacock first. How does this Olympics postponement impact Peacock and NBC Uni? Before we get into that, we should acknowledge some breaking news that came in this morning uh, is that NBC Universal CEO Jeff Schell said this morning in a memo to staff that he tested positive for coronavirus. So, That company has a lot of things going on, the least of which is gearing up for the launch of of Peacock. So sending well wishes to everyone and all of our friends there as well. But as as far as Peacock is concerned, look, you know, the service is still launching as planned. There is a soft launch April 15th for Comcast subscribers and the national launch was pegged for July 15th, which was a week before the Olympics were supposed to start. The platform was going to carry a number of events and stream them live. 
this was a, a massive, this was the biggest launch pad that you could have. The Olympics are, of course, so much bigger than the Super Bowl. And we consider the Super Bowl as the crown jewel of the TV calendar every single year. So the NBC has paid billions of dollars to continue to carry the games for the foreseeable future. And this is a big blow to how Peacock was planning to market and launch it itself because the Olympics were going to be a cross-platform promotion for Peacock. Um, so what are they going to do without it? Well, made a lot of calls. Talk, we've spoken, you know, Natalie Jarvie and I spoke with a lot of analysts and, and people within Peacock, people around it, agents, etc. And the one thing that we keep hearing is the same thing. They have over 15,000 hours of library content. So next year, they'll have The Office exclusively. This summer, they're going to have the entire SNL library, Parks and Recreation exclusively, 30 Rock, Friday Night Lights, Heroes, just a number of shows at a time when chances are people are still going to need and want library content. And what's more important, too, is that this is a service that's free. And yes, it's got ads on it because it's ad supported. There is a, an, an option where you can get it without ads. But, you know, as a lot of people are stuck at home right now and some may be experiencing subscription fatigue where you're paying for all of these different services, this one's coming to you free. And it's got a lot of content, like hundreds of hours of Dick Wolf shows, as we've previously discussed on the show. But this could be a, a good thing for Peacock and it could be a good thing for HBO Max when it launches nationally in May, too, because Friends isn't streaming anywhere right now. And Friends, they'll have it in May. I, I think having a lot of these big library titles is obviously a big thing. Obviously, though, not having the promotional platform for a launch is a large blow. I don't think this probably would have been the same thing as all of the scripted shows that over the years NBC has failed rather dismally to launch out of the Olympics. So, I mean, that's always the thing you have to keep in mind. I remember Animal Practice, Dan. Uh, Animal Practice, little show called uh, King of the Pride, etc. This is the, the Heroes revival. I believe that the world refers to sports audiences, of course, as a quote unquote borrowed audience. And I think that's a I think that's a good idiom. So it's that's a way of saying basically <laughs> we might be getting that audience now, but we can't guarantee that we can funnel them into the next thing. On the other hand, it seems like a very, very different thing to be able to say here. We have this new service that you're probably already getting free if you're a subscriber in the right way. Go watch it. So that seems like something where the Olympics actually could have been obviously a significantly larger boon and they won't have it now. But all of these things, library content wise, they're just so important and they're so important in terms of what people are looking for to watch. There's no lack of original TV at this moment, but that doesn't mean that that's what people are necessarily looking for. People are to some degree looking for the comfort legacy library titles and the fact that now Friends is, you know, out of circulation. I assume that for some people like Leslie Goldberg, that's very upsetting because now you're at the mercy of whatever's airing and repeats on uh, TV land or wherever it's airing and repeats. Spoiler alert. Friends is still airing on Nick at Night every night. Nick at Night, not TV land. Uh, but or alternatively, your DVD collection, which I assume you have hidden away yes. somewhere. <laughs> I mean, yes, I have the Blu-ray and the DVD box sets because that's well, that's the kind of household we are. But we also, you know, just getting back to Peacock, the other thing that's interesting is, yes, it has these two launches, right? The Comcast only launch in April and then the national launch in July. But eventually when the Olympics do come around and it will be before summer 2021 per the IOC, that's an ev that's basically saying turning their the Peacock's July national launch into kind of a second or maybe a soft first national launch before it goes wide next summer in 2021 when 
Peacock will have The Office already around. Production will have resumed on a lot of its scripted shows. They do have some scripted stuff that's already in the can, like Brave New World, um, which is a big budget sci-fi show. But yeah, when when they do have the Olympics, they're going to chances are they're going to have a lot of library content, too, that the where a lot of those shows that are that are currently shared with Disney owned Hulu. Once those deals, those licensing deals expire, a lot of that content will become exclusive to Peacock. So when the Olympics do come around, this is going to be basically a second national launch and, and the company will be even better positioned and have hopefully by then, if it has whatever kinks it has, if any, will be worked out and it's going to have an even bigger platform. It's got like, here's all the probably Saved by the Bell, possibly Battlestar Galactica, plus The Office and it plus, you know, plus it's free and the Olympics, you know, so it's not a terrible thing, but it is still still a blow nonetheless. So. I would say that the cancellation of the Olympics for NBC, pretty much a terrible thing. But. Yeah, they still have to figure out what to do with, you know, the one point two billion dollars in ad sales that they've done. And if the you know, that but that's a whole other ball of wax. So do, do those ad sales carry over to next year? Do they issue make goods for now? What's a make good in this climate when you have no idea how long you're going to have original content? It's a dark rabbit hole, Dan. In, in my mind, I have some NBC executives or other uh, looking a lot like the Monopoly man holding several uh, bags of cash with dollar signs on them, running off into the distance going no backseas. But I think probably that is not a uh, practical way to do business. Yeah, probably not, Dan. What do you say? Let's let's go to our next topic, huh? Yes. Number two. Up second. Guess what? It also has to do with the coronavirus. Our second topic this week, amid television and films global production shutdown, some TV shows have managed to keep going. Animation shows are largely remaining unfazed by the industry-wide shutdown and are continuing to deliver episodes to their various networks and streamers. How are they doing this? Well, Leslie Goldberg knows. What up, Leslie? How are they doing this? Well, this was actually one of the more uplifting stories to report amid everything that's going on in our industry. And a lot of it can be credited to, to the, the production cycle that these shows are already on to begin with. Animation typically takes a year to produce an episode, be it the physical animation, the color correction, adding the voiceover stuff, um, let alone writing the episodes, etc. This is it, it. Most of these shows are on a year out calendar. So shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy already have episodes in the can for next season at a time when a lot of shows haven't even been able to finish this season. So this is happening at a time when animated shows were already experiencing a big boom because of how well they perform on streaming services. We know Family Guy and things like Rick and Morty are among the most watched acquired or licensed shows on Hulu, for example. Netflix, as we've noted in the past, invested heavily and opened up its own animation studio. CBS Studios did the exact same thing because they want to own this content and they want to the, the goal is to have writers and producers and animators all working under the same roof because you wind up with a a better product and and b the lines of communication are considerably easier a show like the simpsons for example outsources its animation to uh, who knows where but it's not done in-house um so a big part of this is that these shows were already up and running and already ahead, and they are adapting like other writers' rooms to using technology like Zoom. That's great for writers' rooms. They've done a couple of shows, including Big Mouth on Netflix and The Simpsons, have done table reads via Zoom, which is more than 40 people virtually sitting around the same virtual table, running lines and, and 
you know, like that, that's kind of a, a great story, at least for, you know, in, in this landscape. And, you know, you've got, you know, a lot of these shows, there was a family guy producer who had the foresight of saying, let's get everyone set up. They went out and bought software and equipment for people to set them up at home well before the governor ordered the stay at home mandate. So, you know, this was th- that happened on the Simpsons that happened on family guy. So you're starting to see a lot of these systems find new ways to keep going. And that's, uh, you know, one of the things that, that why you're going to see family guy and the Simpsons unfazed by night, you know, by, by what all of this next year. So, and they'll definitely be able to carry the, the 22 episode orders. One of the things I thought that was most amusing in, in your great article on THR was that family guy is having musicians record the score at home. Is that something that's happening? That is beyond bizarre. <laughs> yeah, a lot of musicians are, are recording the tracks independently, and then it's all going to have to come come together through a mix. Um, the other thing that I'm hearing that d- didn't really find a way to fit it into the story is that a lot of these shows, like if God forbid they have any problem doing voiceover, like someone like Seth MacFarlane, for example, has had a voiceover studio at home for years. But if any other actor is having issues recording stuff, they have a a library of 350 episodes plus to draw from. And chances are you're going to get the audio you need somewhere. And and that's, of course, a worst case scenario for a show like this. So, um, yeah, I mean, expect more. We're hearing a couple of animated shows are going to get early renewals because they want to keep the production going. And that's generally why shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy and a lot of the, you know, the Netflix shows like Disenchantment get these early renewals because it does take so long to produce these episodes. So this is one area of our industry that is adapting and finding ways to, to keep going. And they're moving along. Al Jean, who's the showrunner on The Simpsons, said it's, it's pretty much business as usual. <sighs> well, we'll see how long that continues to be the case. But Knock on wood, I suppose. Yes, knock on wood. Well, that takes us to our third segment this week. Number three. You know, look, given the massive slowdown and the num- the amount of breaking news that we usually discuss on this show, we are looking to you, our wonderful listeners, for topics and other mailbag questions. So if you have one, please send it to us at TV's Top 5. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. And hopefully coming soon, you know, we're talking about some interesting things that we can do, perhaps a live mailbag segment via Google Hangout or something. So that's something that we're working on. So stay tuned to our Twitter feeds for more. And let's get into some questions. What do you say, Dan? Absolutely. I should note, incidentally, we got a lot of very good questions uh, last week, and we really appreciate it. Thank you all, yes. So if we're not reading your questions, it's not because they weren't good questions. It's because these are the ones- We got a lot of questions. We got a lot of questions, which we totally appreciate. And these are the ones that caught our fancy today, but keep them coming because you never know what mood we're going to be in to answer things uh, next week or the week after. So seriously, we love your questions and appreciate it. Uh, Listener Carl, who actually sent like five great questions that we could have answered, but we're only going to answer one because, come on, got to share the uh, wealth a little bit. Carl from Minneapolis asked us to look into our crystal balls to find what lessons we see the TV landscape learning during this pandemic, i.e. if upfronts will ever be in person again, uh, if straight to series orders will rise or if everything will simply return to normal. What you say, Leslie? Well, one of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of people is working remotely is actually working out pretty well. In our showrunner spotlight, we have Gloria calderon Kellett from One Day at a Time, who uh, we asked about that and how working remotely via Zoom is influencing the writers' rooms and how that's going. But I'm hearing from a lot of, of different people who are saying, you know, that they're around their home to put their kids to, you know, to sleep at night. Some executives have said that working remotely could 
produce a very sizable cost savings when you're looking at, uh, you know, paying $30,000 a month in rent to keep for writer's rooms. Plus, you've got, you know, lunch tabs, et cetera. Um, but there is a cost savings here. There's also an environmental benefit. So I could see that possibly having some kind of, of lasting impact. Some executives may not need to travel across the country for a meeting. You can just zoom in if you've got a laptop in the in the pitch meeting. I mean, we have a great story from my colleague, Mikey O'Connell, who spoke with a number of executives who are continuing to do their pitch meetings, but doing so via teleconferencing. And sometimes it's working out for a lot of different people. So I could see that being something that that sticks. Yeah. I will be very interested to see what happens with upfronts because like pilot season, they're sort of this insanely expensive relic of a past era. And I'll be curious to see if people decide that such things are necessary. And and I think probably there are definitely reasons to continue to have something resembling the upfronts. But I think people will begin to look at how things can be done differently. I think probably even something like the TCA press tour is something where people are going to give consideration to how to handle it. Uh, you know, as a as a former TCA president, I always say over and over again that there is simply no way to get your product in front of as big a room of high profile journalists as the TCA press tour and that it still has great value and should continue to exist. But the question of how it might be changed or how it should slash could be changed is something that I'm glad is not currently under my presidential purview. But I think it's a, a very real question. Uh, Carl also asked if there were any changes to network scripted television that you wish could come out of this upended world where there are no rules. Do you have any answers to what you wish might come out of this? Well, I think we're going to start to see probably a lot more broadcast networks following the cable and streaming model of straight to series model. And that's something that they've been experimenting more and more with. You know, we saw ABC hand out a rare straight to series order for fall for a David E. Kelly show. I mean, it's David E. Kelly. I think you know what you're going to get with that. But I could see this having a, a larger Im impact this year, because as, as we noted in last week's episode, a lot of these pilots are, are going to be unable to be produced. And this week, the networks handed out a lot of backup scripts orders or picked up a lot of backup scripts. So they said you know, a lot of dramas got in order to, to write episode two or, or some some were able to open mini rooms to get going. I've heard that some producers are trying to film sizzle reels using what limited footage that they did have in order to get a pickup. But I could see this becoming something where, you, you know, you're not buying hundreds and hundreds of scripts every year and then producing 60 plus pilots. Maybe you're 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 placing fewer bets, but you're just spending more on each swing. Um, that's a lot of different metaphors there, but I think you get the point. So th that's what I could see as being the biggest uh, thing that could come out of this world. Yeah, I think I think definitely adjustments to the pilot season process are just so essential because there are yeah. so many inefficiencies in that particular marketplace that. And yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, you know, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but the other thing that, that we're seeing is a lot of these networks, specifically ABC and Fox, we're looking at second cycles. What this means is doing things beyond the traditional January to, to March development and pilots and doing all that and, and looking to things afterwards when you're not competing with other networks and streamers for top talent at, or sound stages or producers or directors, et cetera. And I think you're going to start to see a, a larger shift to more year round stuff. The bigger question that I have is, you know, however long this lasts, this big production shutdown and our world remains at a standstill, 
the bigger influence it could have on the traditional September fall launch. So a lot of people don't really have an answer because we don't look, look, we don't know how long this is going to last. So what happens if you can't produce shows to launch in September? And September has traditionally been the time when the fall season launches because it's when kids go back to school, more people are watching television, it gets darker earlier. But I think, you know, as these cable and streaming networks have shown, you don't necessarily need to be tethered to a September launch. So CW, for example, moved out of that. They, they do, uh, they've traditionally launched in October, but when it's out of the September crazy and you're not competing with, you know, 13 or 15 other shows on other broadcast networks. But I really wonder if we'll, we'll start to shift to a calendar year. I don't know. Uh, it, it's a big question that, that I'm very interested in seeing how, how this all plays out. Let's get to our next question. Listener Sam was among several emails we received asking us how the pandemic and production shutdowns will impact a potential Writers Guild strike. What you got for an update, Leslie? Well, this week, the WGA said that it will likely continue to work under an expired contract. The current agreement is up May 1st. So this basically means that the Guild's negotiating committee has told its members that it cannot effectively negotiate what is supposed to be a new three-year deal amid a global pandemic. So basically, there's not going to be any kind of strike authorization vote in the interim, and that once the current deal expires, writers will continue to work under the current deal. So it's basically an extension of the current deal is what we're seeing. So, and I, I can't imagine anyone, no matter how you feel about residuals or what side of, of, of the aisle you fall on in, in these negotiations, one thing is clear, no one's going to want to stop working in this in this climate. Yeah, this is this is not the moment for a strike. Yeah. Um, and we should also note that this is affecting everyone. Paradigm, which is one of the bigger agencies, uh, recently laid off more than 100 staffers. A lot of them were in the live events and music area. They also signed the WGA's code of conduct. And that is an issue that has, is almost now a year since the WGA in, instructed its members to fire their agents. So, you know, this is the battle over packaging fees, for example, and... So far, all of the smaller and mid-sized agencies have signed it. The only holdouts are the big four, WME, ICM, CAA, and UTA. But yeah, this is, you know, no one is going to want to strike in this because this, the global pandemic is affecting every facet of our business. Well, this segment has sadly been a lot of doom and gloom, but so let's end this one with a fun one. Listener Michaela Dan has a special request for you and wants to hear your thoughts on the current season of Survivor from you, Mr. Survivor Megafan. Uh, well, people who follow me know that I was very much irritated slash turned off by last season of Survivor uh, with its rather awful sexual assaulty quote unquote twist, which was not really an intentional Ugh. twist, just a twist utterly blundered by producers in the network, which they, to their utter credit, admitted that they blundered and that they could have done better. And so, yeah, I was definitely last year's both of last year's seasons were actually pretty bad. The first season last year had the edge of extinction twist where someone won the game for basically playing seven days in Survivor. That was bad. And then last season was bad. This season, though, the vaunted all winners season 40 has thus far been a good deal more entertaining and it's had its heart much more in the right place. It hasn't had the horribly awkward moments. 
On the other hand, it continues to have the Edge of Extinction twist, which anyone who knows me knows that I think sucks. It is such a bad way to be playing Survivor, to be able to have people go off and just loiter on another island with the chance to come back in 20 or 30 days later or 38 days later and still win the game. It's it's an awful twist, even though it's been better this season because they've given them some things to do. And also, there are just a lot of good characters who are out on that island doing very little, and so they're decent TV. It's been an interesting season because all 20 contestants were winners, and so you figure, okay, that's going to mean a lot of high gameplay, but one of the things that maybe they didn't anticipate quite so totally was the division of allegedly old-school versus new-school Survivor players, and the early votes this season have been almost entirely to eliminate the old-school players, which to me is is just bizarre because even if there actually was collusion and the players all got together beforehand and said, yeah, we're we're getting rid of the the oldsters, you couldn't have done it as cleanly as they've done it. So all of the players who a lot of fans were like, yes, I can't wait to have Boston Rob back, to have Parvati back, to have Tyson back, to have Queen Sandra back. Uh, a lot of those people have been getting voted out quickly. And so they're in for those fans. Edge of Extinction has value because at least they didn't go home. I believe it was something that Amber said when she was the first or second person sent to exile, you know, that if she had been in a season where she'd just gone home or rather left and gone to a resort for 39 days, she would have felt like she wasted this time away from her family. So at least she has a chance to come back to the game. I guess I can understand that. I still don't buy it as a, a fan, but it's it's been interesting and they've gotten rid of so many of the highest profile of players. I think that the winner is most likely to come from a pool of more recent winners who a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. Like I've had conversations with real fans of the game who don't remember anything about Sophie or how Sophie won. And allow me to tell you, Sophie is freaking awesome, and she was awesome in her season, too. So I love the idea that a player who is that kind of below-the-radar player in terms of Survivor lore has a chance to be like, yeah, I came out with 20 winners, and I was the person who came out on top. So I'm really hoping that it's someone like that, that it's someone like Sophie who comes away winning, and everyone just goes, huh, okay, well. That's what happens when you put 20 winners together. So anyway, I've been mostly enjoying this season after after hating last season and feeling really guilty watching it entirely. I'm glad to be back to mostly enjoying Survivor. Well, Dan, now I understand what our listeners must feel like when we talk about baseball. So <laughs> I didn't understand any of that. But I'm glad that you're enjoying finding something that you're watching for pleasure, my friend. <laughs> I do. I do my best. I like occasionally enjoying the TV I watch. What I'm enjoying even more is having Top Chef back. Top Chef returned last week, also with an all-star season. And that show is, to me, absolute comfort food. I'm very happy to have that one back, too. Well, that wraps our mailbag this week. A reminder, if you have questions or topics that you would like to hear us address or showrunner interviews that you would like to see featured, please drop us a line at TV's top five at THR.com. That's the number five. And let's move on. Up next, it's time for another Showrunner Spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guest in this week's showrunner spotlight joins us via Google Hangout. She is the co-showrunner of Netflix turned pops beloved One Day at a Time. She cut her teeth on shows including How I Met Your Mother, Rules of Engagement, Devious Maids, and iZombie. Gloria Calderon Kellett joins us this week. Thank you for joining us, Gloria. Thank you for having me. I guess I want to start with the premiere, which already aired on Pop this week. And the opening scene features a very, very pointed wink, nodge, acknowledgement of the Netflix situation. How did you guys decide how you wanted to address that and how much you wanted to address that? You know, honestly, we were not going to address it at all. What happened is one of our writers... We have alts. We're a comedy room. So there's alts that are pitched constantly on the floor. And one of our writers pitched it as an alt, and we thought it would be funny for the audience. We really had no intention of actually using it. We just thought it would be fun. (laughs) And the audience loved it. And then we were talking about it, and we're like, you know, it seems in good fun. I mean, we've seen all of our executives many times since the cancellation. They're all heartbroken that we weren't able to move forward we're still very friendly with Ted and Cindy and all of our wonderful executives, Jane and and Andy and Brittany. Like, all of them were wonderful people. It's just they made a business decision I disagree with, and, you know, <laughs> we're all moving on with our lives. So it felt like, you know what, they broke up with us. They can take a little jab. And uh, and it, it was done in really good-natured fun. I think they'd all laugh at it, to be honest. Have you heard from anyone at Netflix about the jab since it aired? I have not, but the day that we premiered, there were a lot of people on the internet asking Netflix why they couldn't find season four, and the Netflix (laughs) account was very sweet and said, it's on Pop TV, and it's great. And so that was very classy. It felt like we saw our ex-boyfriend at a party, and he was being classy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, sticking with that first episode, using the census taker as played by Ray Romano was, was both a great way to reintroduce the characters to the audience and then also simultaneously to underline the importance of the census, of course. And and that's such a good example of the way that the show has kind of tackled politics without sacrificing narrative over the years. How did you guys crack that intro scene and how do you you wanted to approach it? Well, it's interesting. I had, you know, we, Mike and I always have lists of things that are important to us that we'd like to try to talk about with this family. So census was on there, but I had not thought of it as a framework device until one of our writers brought it up and said, hey, why don't we use that as a device of like, here's everybody, here's their relationship to one another, let's go. And it was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. (laughs) So it was great. It worked out really great. And then we'd obviously were like, it'd be great to get somebody awesome as that census taker. And we've been wanting, obviously, Ray forever, but he... He is reluctant to do sitcoms again, as he was, you know, the highest paid sitcom star (laughs) of our time. And he was kind enough to do it for Top of Show just as a favor to Mike because he loves Mike Roy so much. So we're very grateful to to Ray. They, of course, go back to men of a certain age and... Everybody loves Raymond. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And and we should should single out Mike Roy's uh, friend of the podcast who's been on our show twice already. So it's nice uh, to have you on finally. (laughs) He is the best. He's the best cis white male ally. We love Mike Roy's... (laughs) (laughs) Now, sticking with the way that the show has tackled politics, how did the looming election factor into how political you guys wanted to get this season and how specifically political you wanted to get? 
Well, you know, it's so interesting. I've had sort of a change of heart in the in discussions recently because people ask about the show being political all the time. And it doesn't feel political to me to have these conversations, but I suppose what is political is I do have an agenda. I do want to change hearts and minds. I do want to have this Latinx family come into your home and make you perhaps feel differently if there's nobody Latino in your life and you have a, a, a frame of reference that is currently what's on television, which is not an accurate portrayal of who we are. So I suppose by being female and Latina in this country right now, that is political. So in talking about that and putting forth what I think is a an accurate representation of what my family looks like, I guess that is political. So yeah, we constantly just try to ground the show. I mean, it is a multi-cam sitcom. It is heightened and, and there are jokes and all of that, but we really do try to ground it and make it more in the tradition of of what Norman did and what Mike and I both respond to, which is grounded, more play-like, if anything, comedy. And I think when we're doing it right, or at least when we're the most proud, is when we're able to have grounded moments where people aren't doing wacky things. They're just being so themselves that the relationships between the characters become humorous. But there's no direct addressing of the election because, for example, this would we, be we this would be Lydia's first time voting in an American voting, election. Yes, no, it would be. We had an episode that we were not yet able to shoot. We do have an episode that is definitely a political episode. It is about talking to family about politics. The whole episode is about that. We have not been able to shoot it. Um, we were only able to shoot six episodes of our 13. The great news about this Zoom technology is that we have tabled all of our scripts. So when we do come out of this madness, we hope that we will be able to finish shooting the final seven episodes because one of them is a is definitely a political episode. Discussing the election, discussing politics with family, discussing when it's important to talk about it, and when it isn't. You know, just building off of that. And I think we can circle back to some of the stuff from this season of the show. But, you know, you said you're able to, to have filmed six of 13. And with the show kicking off on pop this week, you're bringing happiness into so many people's lives with these new episodes. But knowing that there's only six and knowing how uncertain it is of when you're going to be back up and running, like... I mean, look, the latest that, you know, as we record this is that L.A. may be in quarantine through May. How might that affect and like what conversations are you having about how you wind up leaving things? Or, you know, we've heard a lot of broadcast shows, for example, are they, they either have to roll the episodes to next season or they're just going to be lost episodes if the shows don't come back at all. Um, what kind of talks are you guys having? What have you been told, especially considering the status of pop with originals and your uncertain future? Right. Well, it's all very uncertain. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, we're kind of really taking it one day at a time, truly, because I will not step back on a set. There. <laughs> see what I did? See what I did? Now, um, I, I won't I won't step back on a set or have my crew step back on a set or have legend and national treasure Rita Moreno step back on a set until <laughs> it is safe for them to all do so. So we need to be in a situation and I don't know what that looks like. And hopefully greater minds than mine are thinking about that. I've certainly been talking on Twitter and offline to showrunners to discuss, like, what are things that we need to ask the studio for? What are things that we should demand? People are talking about a band camp world where we all quarantine ourselves somewhere and we take a test and we don't interact. That seems highly unfeasible to me because PAs are constantly going out to get food or going. I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but I think that those sorts of creative conversations need to happen in order for this industry. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, so somebody's going to have to figure figure it out so that The Rock can go back to work, right? I mean, 
I can't help but think of my crew who I love so very much and many of whom are paycheck to paycheck and we were able to get them a few more weeks of pay, but we don't know how long that's going to go. So we're, we're trying to be creative and hopefully the, the good news about the six episodes is we actually, our sixth episode is kind of a nice little capstone for part one of season four. It ties up some things very nicely. So if this has to be part one of season four, that would be okay with me. And then hopefully we'll be able to shoot part two. Luckily, the numbers were good. So uh, hopefully they will keep us going. And Viacom is a large company that owns Pops. And they have many, you know, we were at simulcast. We were on TV Land and Pop and Logo. So hopefully that means there's a lot of homes that we could go to if Pop decides not to make any more original programming. I'm not sure. This is all really the Wild West. We, it's so much unknown at this moment. Yeah. And I mean, your your Twitter thread the other night, I admit I, I read a lot of the responses that as they were coming in and it doesn't really sound like there's any way around going back like how you go back to production I mean we're getting a lot of emails from listeners saying what has to happen for production to resume and you guys are a multi-camera comedy which means you film in front of a live studio audience and in, in the early days before the production was shut down across the industry a lot of those shows like you guys were doing so without a live audience. The same with late night and some of the daytime syndicated fair and game shows. But outside of like a sequestered band camp thing, which you mentioned, have you heard any good suggestions about how you could even consider going back? I mean, the the thing that I put out there, and again, I am not a scientist. I'm not, I don't know anything about anything. I'm just thinking I have an immune compromised husband and mother. So I can't be the one that goes out there. And I feel like every single person in our crew has somebody like that that's important to them if it's not them themselves. So for me, I think I would be comfortable if fast tests become a reality. If somebody, I think that right now in the UK, there's a 15 minute test that's innovation that's happened very quickly. Hopefully that means that soon there can be a two-minute test, like a pregnancy test, and every single person on your set has to take it every day. They come in in the morning, they take their test, two minutes, great, you're clear, you go in. I would, if everyone, I mean, my skeleton crew would be 65 people. That's the least amount of people, because I asked, that's the least amount of people on the set to do the multi-cam sitcom without an audience. And how many is it in a normal situation without an audience, just for comparison's sake? You know what? I don't know. I'd have to ask. I just literally said, what's the least amount I can have? And so the producer yeah. got back to me and said 65. I don't know how many are on there normally. I mean, our crew is like 200 and something people. Yeah, yeah. I think we're like 225 or something. So the least amount I could have would be 65. And then that would be, you know, makeup would stay in the makeup room and watch from the monitors. Wardrobe would watch from the monitors. Like I would try to sequester people. But but still, like, I, I how do I ask Rita to come on a set? Unless every single person is negative. I just, I, I, I don't, I don't see how we can do that. So if there's a way to do fast tests and studios invest in fast tests and, and test their crew every single day, because also maybe you're okay today, but then you go home and you go to the grocery store and you, I, I just don't know who everyone is interacting with so that the next day I think they'd have to be tested again. I, I mean, I would love to see another way forward or start having these conversations openly so that we can find a solution together. And and did you guys actually shoot episodes in, without the studio audience? How we many... did. We sh we shot two without the audience. Talk a bit about that experience and how kind of strange and alien it was compared to the warmth that you guys receive on a weekly yeah. basis. It's not the same. I mean, I luckily, thank God, luckily we have amazing actors who have rhythmically mastered what this show is for three seasons. It's the only I can't imagine on a first season show doing it. 
because they know that they're now in the mode where they know where the laugh is. They know where to hold. They know where to, they're pros now, right? So, I mean, Rita and Justine, so many of them were already pros, but especially the kids, right? So they feel it. They feel when they're supposed to pause. They they adjust their performance accordingly for where the audience would respond. So we're grateful for that, but it's different. Are you going to put in a digital laugh track? We're going to have to do, yeah, we, we have recordings from earlier live audiences that we're going to sub in, I guess. Huh. Have you have you watched what they actually look like? Have you had the chance to yeah. do that? Yeah. <laughs> it's still good. It's still it's still good. I mean, it's still good. It's just, you know, you, we can tell the slight difference. It's also, you know, these are actors that love an audience. So there's a little bit more of an oomph, but they're all so good. We're so lucky that they're so good. And truthfully, with every multicam, there's a few scenes of every episode that you shoot without an audience. You pre-shoot on Monday, right? So like scenes in cars, scenes in swing sets that you're going to, that have to come down, restaurants and things like that that are, your, that are not your regular sets. So it's not like we've never pre-shot stuff before, but it would be one or two scenes, not the whole episode. Speaking of how you're adapting in this climate, you are among the shows that have shifted to virtual writers' rooms using yes. apps like Zoom. We've heard from other showrunners that it's it's going well, but what's your experience been like? And just out of curiosity, how has Norman Lear adjusted to to this new world too? Well, Norman is not in the writers' room. You know, he's our he's like our our grandfather who blesses us. He came to visit us for two minutes the other day, which was so beautiful to just to see his face on the screen. But he's not in the he's not in the writer's room day to day. Again, the benefit of us already being halfway through the season is we already know our writers. We know what their voices are. We know who excels at what. And so it it was not a difficult transition to move over to Zoom. We're also rewriting scripts. We're not pitching. We're not breaking story, which would be trickier, I think. But I think rooms are adjusting. Rooms are adjusting. It's better in person. But I would say, might I do a day or two a week or might I do rewrites via Zoom? Sure. It has definitely made us realize ways that we can perhaps be a little kinder to the environment during hiatus weeks, perhaps, and still work, but be able to do so from home. And I, I was talking with a showrunner the other day who mentioned that it could also give some opportunities to people who are trying to break into the industry who haven't moved to L.A. and maybe could do the job remotely. Like, Could you see that happening where hypothetically, and, and let's knock on wood here, the show gets renewed and maybe you bring in a writer who lives out of state and you have a, just a laptop in the room? Possibly. I, I possibly, I mean, with multicam, it's hard. We're so on the set. I think yeah. for I think for one hours where a lot of times you have these one hours that shoot in Vancouver or shoot in Georgia or shoot in Louisiana, and you're not there for the day to day anyway. So in that regard, I don't think it would matter. For multicam where we're really doing a play, the writers go down to set every day. You know, we are there with the actors, so it makes it a little bit trickier for us, but certainly possibly for shadowing opportunities. Although writers' rooms are such sacred places, it's. It's it would be that would be interesting, too. But I think possibly I would say the answer is possibly. Well, what have you learned so far in these virtual writers rooms in terms of what you have to do to keep up the energy? Because I have to imagine that a comedy writers room is all about the give and take and the back and forth. And I have to imagine that's extra difficult in a situation like this. I think under the circumstances, we are all dying for a comedic reprieve from what's happening that it's actually been okay. <laughs> We've all been so relieved to see each other and to laugh together when 
everything else when you turn when you shut off the the laptop seems to be a dumpster fire. So I would say actually that there is a great relief to coming together. There's a, a real beauty in the community that it provides. And so thus far, maybe maybe as this gets if this goes for a very long time, that that's something we're going to have to revisit in terms of what we need to do for energy. But right now, it's not a problem. One of the things, you know, we touched on this earlier, you know, look, Dan and I have discussed this on previous episodes. The state of pop is kind of in flux because they backed out and stepped away from a lot of scripted series. Obviously, Schitt's Creek is ending. They have you guys. And one of the things that they're doing business-wise is focusing on owning more of their content. And you well, guys everybody are producing is, right? outside. Yes, everyone, everybody especially is. the streamers, everyone yes, is. Yes, everyone is. But you guys are owned by Sony. And eventually, you, you know, when the season is complete, you're, you're going to air on CBS as part of the deal that, that Viacom made with Netflix. But what have you been told about another season? Could you see being shifted to CBS for first run episodes after this season? I mean, what's the update on, on your future right now? What have you been told? We really don't know. We don't know. We were really surprised to read the news of the other shows being pulled. So we're grateful that we still exist. And I would say that we're very fortunate to have Sony, first of all, because they've been such uh, incredible, fierce mama bears in terms of fighting for us. And also they split the cost of the show. You know, a lot of the other shows that are out there on, on cable are less expensive I think that the, you know, I, I don't know what they were, but I think roughly, you know, they're under a million dollars and, you know, multi-cam sitcoms are a little bit more than that. So sharing the financial burden has been key in, in having us continue. Obviously, you know, we are a multi-cam show. I think that we would go great on CBS. CBS was my home for many years, How I Met Your Mother and Rules of Engagement. I think we would be a great fit. It would be great to see a Latino family on, on CBS. But really, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't care where the show lives. I just want it to continue. You know, yeah, Pop yeah. has been Pop has been so good to us and so kind. Bradley Schwartz has been an angel. They've been so supportive and so we've loved working with them and we would love to continue working with them, but I don't know. I don't know if they know what their what their fate is. So, as long as we keep doing it, I don't care where they put us. In success, you record the remainder of your uh, 13 episode orders. How does the season end without spoiling anything, of course, yeah. but if God forbid the show doesn't come back. Is it a good ending where that it could feel like a series finale or does it also kind of leave the door open for another season? Like, how do you set it up? We always, you mean the 13th episode of season four? Yes. Yeah. Every season we do, uh, I like sitcoms where the finale is something that lets me know that these people for the next 50 years are still alive and out there and doing what they do. Right. That's my favorite. I like thinking that they're so I, I never loved like crazy endings or fast forwards or that was never my thing. I really always preferred that they're just out there doing what they do. They're still out there. They're still out there living and loving, et cetera. So all of our final episodes of each season have some version of it could be an episode that closes it out. Every, I mean, if you look at seasons one through three, those were all written as if this is the end, this is the end, because we never knew what our fate was. And the, the, the same is true here. The same is true here. But we have so many more stories to tell about this family. Mike and I came in with, I mean, pages and pages of stuff that we didn't even get to. Because after a year and a half of not being able to 
kind of speak to these characters and in their voices, it just came pouring out. This season came pouring out. We've never broken a season so fast. And it was just, it just spoke to, oh, wow, like this really can go for years and years and years. We have so many stories that we didn't even get to touch on that we still want to do. So I would say both are true. If it had to be the end, then uh, then yes, I think it would be a satisfying ending, but hopefully we'll be able to go for many more years. You sound reasonably chill with the uncertainty. I'm curious if that's just generally your personality type or if the first couple seasons of being on the bubble at Netflix kind of taught you how to approach uncertainty differently. Well, I think being a TV writer, you have to approach uncertainty and make some sort of peace with it. I mean, for the first 12 years before One Day at a Time, I was a comedy writer on other shows and you never know I mean every year was uh, my is my show coming back we don't know I mean I was never I think one season how I met your mother got an early pickup and we knew we were coming back but other than that the uncertainty has been consistent for over a decade of my life so you got to make peace with it because what's the alternative (laughs) so I think that's that's just how I've had to make it through One of the things that I think about when I think of your show is, especially right now, is, holy crap, have you guys been through so much? (laughs) You're the the poster child for a streaming bubble show, the cancellation, then you celebrate it with a pop revival, then pop as we know it is disintegrating before our eyes um and now you're you can't even finish filming this season because there's a global (laughs) pandemic i mean yeah what i mean you know we're recording this via google hangout but you have the biggest smile on your face right now (laughs) what's what's the mood i mean have you guys like had a moment to sit there and, and think about what you've been through and and the perseverance i mean to me it's like you know you guys are the show of our time well, that's lovely. I got to be honest with you. These are, it's champagne problems. It's champagne problems. <laughs> it really is. It is. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't feel like we've been through so much. I feel like there are people on this planet who are going through some hell. Yeah. I have not oh, experienced yeah. that for one moment. Me wondering if my show is coming back or not is not the same as what so many people on this earth deal with. I am so aware of my privilege constantly. I'm the daughter of immigrants. I will never for one moment understand what it's like to be scared and alone and 15 years old and here without my family with a suitcase and not knowing what the hell is going to happen. That was my parents. So this is not traumatic. It's not. It's a bummer. I love it and I want to make it and I, I, I do it, though. Everything I do is in service of the sacrifice that my parents made and my grandparents made uh, in sending my parents here to strangers in the hopes that these strangers would be kind to them. And when my parents came in 62, strangers were kind. And that's not always the case and certainly not what's happening right now. And so I am so aware of how fortunate I am to have gotten to grow up with with the human beings that raised me and have gotten to uh, be educated, gotten to come here, had opportunities to to rise in this industry, and now be able to tell a story that honors them. It is a pin- I pinch myself every single day. So it's all relative, and I think that every moment I get to make this show is is a gift. And um, I hope that we get to do more of it. But if we don't, what a ride! I feel like. Uh... <laughs> It's, it's it's tough to follow on that. Yeah. But, I want, but I wanted I do want to talk a little bit more about sort of the show this season and how it's evolved, because obviously one of the biggest changes you guys have had to face is going from a basically any time 
frame that you want, you know, 30 minutes, 27 minutes, whatever, to the tighter window that Pop has. When you were going over scripts, sort of having established what the rhythms were at Netflix, what did you find that you were having to trim back for the tighter uh, cable version? Well, it's so interesting. I I feel like in a, in the strangest ways, this was supposed to be the journey for this show. It, it's like, I don't know, like, I feel like, I don't know if it's my, my, my grandmother, the real Lydia Riera from heaven guiding us, but like we were able with these first, th- first three seasons and all of this time to add all of this texture that had we been on a network from the get-go, I don't know that we would have had the time to establish. And so it's been this gift of three seasons where you got so much of who these people are that now it's actually easy. I mean, we, Mike and I were like, oh, this is going to be interesting. But, you know, we both come from sitcom. He was, of course, on Everybody Loves Raymond. I was on How I Met Your Mother and Rules. We're used to this 20-minute thing. The show is a traditional multi-camera sitcom. It has built-in act breaks by virtue of the fact that it's inciting incident, progressive complication, climax resolution, right? Like these are these are the basics of what a multi-cam is. And and we that's the that's the foundation that we always break story from. So when we actually got to this moment of writing these episodes and cutting the pages, it was like, oh, it's just it's still our show. Like, I remember Rita, after the first episode, was like, gosh, I was so nervous. But, like, it's still our show. And it's like, yeah, it's still our show. It's just a little bit less time. So what you cut is B stories. What you cut is texture that's fun but not necessary. So it's just zappier. It's just, like, zippy zappy. And because we had the first three seasons to do the establishing, it's kind of okay that now it's zippy zappy. So... That's kind of was kind of what happened. I mean, what's going to be more interesting to to me as we move along is we usually start the season a, a little bit lighter and then we start to tread into more serious territory mid to end of season. And so those were the episodes that we haven't shot yet. We did what episode six has emotional beats in it. But that's where I'm curious as we're doing the cutting, what that's going to feel like, because those moments you do want to let them breathe a little bit more. The emotional stuff, which we definitely have this season. So uh, that remains to be seen. But certainly on on How I Met Your Mother, we were able to do those in the in the time frame. So I have high hopes that we'll be able to still maintain that emotional texture Um but for now, we're, we're enjoying the, the Zippy Zappy. Well, speaking of the Zippy Zappy, <laughs> the third episode is one of the funniest that you guys have ever done. And Yay! It, <laughs> and, it, and it features a very um, particular subplot involving yeah. uh, a son catching his mother in an intimate situation. It's true. I, I'm curious about how you approached the subtleties and graphic nature of that as a situation and if it would have been any different in Netflix with maybe different permissiveness? Uh, I don't think it would have been different. I mean, this truly, this is an episode I've been trying to get Mike to do for three seasons. <laughs> and it. I'm grateful to him that it took until now because Alex is now more understanding of that subject matter. So it's oddly less awkward because he's older. <laughs> uh, and look, we needed to find the story. I mean, I start a lot of things with like, I want to see this scene. Does it start something, right? So I pitched that first scene of her in the therapy group three years ago. And he was like, okay, but now what's the story? And the story had to be boundaries, right? It's about boundaries and about the boundaries you have with within your family. Latino families don't have a lot of boundaries. 
And I grew up in a house where I could really talk about anything I wanted to talk about. So I realized uh, as I grew up that not everyone had that. And it was very freeing to be able to, within your home, talk about awkward stuff. It's, It's nice. And so certainly with my kids, I talk about a lot of stuff. And I'm sure, don't worry, I'm saving money for their therapy so they can say, Mom talked about everything. <laughs> like, we want her to shut up about stuff. Because, uh, you know, you can never win as a parent. But I would rather be in a place of over-talking and answering every single question possible and making sure that my kids feel comfortable bringing up awkward subject matter. Because I don't feel, I just don't have that filter. Like, I don't feel awkward talking about, like, anything. <laughs> Like, like really anything. I understand other people can get like ooky with stuff, but that's I'm not one of those people. So Penelope's not one of those people. <laughs> well, but it's it's one thing for you to be comfortable with that yourself. But do you ever sit and reflect and go, I am now writing masturbation jokes for Rita Moreno? Yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> joyful. It's it's <laughs> glorious. <laughs> I mean, I'm so. I mean, I was weeping at. The dustbuster, you know, and there's so many lines she has in this that are such a goddamn delight. And and also, I think it was really important to talk about the men were getting a little uncomfortable in the writer's room. OK, so <laughs> the men would get uncomfortable. The women we're talking about vibrate. Mike Royce kept on saying, well, the dildo. I'm like, do you not know the difference between a dildo and a vibrator? This is concerning. Dildos and vibrators are very different, Mike Royce. Um, these and listen, we had to have these conversations for work. This is the thing. Well, this was literally the episode, right? So uh, it was very interesting because there were some conversations that were like, "What is the best vibrator?" Let's sidebar. That's not necessary for the content of this episode, but let's sidebar that, ladies. Anybody who wants to talk about that, we can do so later. But I am what- blushing so hard right now. <laughs> You didn't think one day at a time we'd be talking about vibrators, did you, everybody? <laughs> this is not what I expected when I woke up yes. this morning. So obviously, it. yeah, it so it, it's about masturbation, you guys, if you haven't gleaned <laughs> that. Uh, so, but but I was joking with the guy because they were like, oh, the, guy, the guys were like so clearly uncomfortable. And I was like, here's the thing, guys. We're so, we live in such a patriarchal society that when I was growing up, schwing was something guys would say all the time. Schwing is basically, I have a boner. I mean, that's what schwing yeah, is. it's gross. Okay? It's totally gross. So why are we allowed to be like, a boner, but women can't say like, oh, hello, basement flooded. Um, why can't we do that? Because women think things are sexy and get turned on too. But we are so, so I took great umbrage with why can't we talk about uh, women's pleasure? Because it is under discussed <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Now it's my turn to figure out how to pivot <laughs> off of that answer. <laughs> And sadly, you know, we are running short on time, but we do like to wrap up these interviews with the same question for everyone. Um, and it's a, a, and it's particularly interesting to hear right now, given everyone's quarantine. But what are you watching right now? What are you enjoying? Comedy. I'm watching a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine repeats. Same. That's, that's uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've, I've not hidden my love of that show. I'm watching the Halloween episodes. I'm watching, you know, stand-up, Ali Wong. I'm watching uh, Mulaney. I'm watching Schumer. I'm watching Angela Johnson is a comedic genius. So a lot of, I need comedy. I think that the world needs comedy right now. And, and that's why, you know, we always talk about our show. We want it to be a hug. <laughs> we want it to be like hanging out with friends and a hug at the end. And it feels like, boy, we all need hugs now more than ever. 
Yeah, well said. Well, that is a great place, actually, in that case, to stop. So thank you so much for joining us under these very difficult circumstances for a good laugh, Gloria. We appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank guys. you, guys. Take care out there. The fourth season of One Day at a Time airs Tuesday nights on Pop. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new launches include Ozark and Unorthodox on Netflix, Amazon's Making the Cut, CBS brings Pauly Perrette back with a comedy called Broke, plus new seasons of Siren and Man with a Plan on Freeform and CBS, respectively. Dan, it's a weird week. What you got? Well, let's talk about Man with a Plan on CBS. No. Okay, fine. Let's not talk about that. Or Siren? Sorry. No, no, not gonna not gonna talk about Siren either. Uh, and heck, last week I talked about the witch show. So that's all the free form. Mother that I can... Motherland, Motherhood, Motherland, Fort Salem. Did yes, I get it right? That is indeed Yay! that is indeed the show. And honestly, since we talked about that for a couple uh, minutes last week, and since I've been talking about everything's going to be okay for weeks, I feel like I've given Freeform enough coverage. Uh, yeah, this week I think mostly I'm just going to talk a little bit about some Netflix stuff. Unorthodox, which premiered on Thursday, is a four-part adaptation of a memoir about a young woman who grew up in an Orthodox uh, Hasidic community in Brooklyn and basically fled from her marriage to try to start her life over again. And the series itself is partially a personal spiritual exploration and partially a thriller because the main character played by Shira Haas goes to Berlin and she's followed by her Hasidic husband Yankee and by Moisha, a formerly ostracized Hasid from uh, a different community. And they basically pursue her around Brooklyn while she's pursuing personal freedom. It's a very interesting show. It's it's wonderfully culturally specific. I've I've been enjoying all of the heavily Jewish programming so far this spring. It makes me feel seen, except this is in no way my version of Judaism. And so I really loved watching the things I recognized versus the things that to me were also utterly unfamiliar. And that is very Interesting to watch. I think it is a, a show that maybe needs a little bit more nuance in showing the different versions of Orthodox Judaism, because I, I think some people who don't know about different Hasidic sects, who don't know about why these characters, for example, would be speaking Yiddish. I think there's a lot that people aren't necessarily going to get if they don't know. And it runs the risk of people thinking that Orthodox Jews in general are the villains in the story. And I don't think that's what it is, but I understand how that would be a reasonable concern. And mostly, ultimately, for me, I would recommend it because I think Shira Haas is wonderful. I, th I think it is just a great lead performance. And I, I don't know that there's any way that Netflix would be able to position this for Emmy consideration, but it would be a limited series. I, I think the performance is good enough for that. So that's worth watching. And it's only four episodes. So easy peasy. And then my other recommendation this week, and it's a little bit strange to me, is... I kind of liked the third season of Ozark, and I Whoa. don't know what to do with that information. That is a change, man. <laughs> you are, were not a fan of seasons one and two. I was mixed on the first season. My first season if you uh, review, if you go back and look, is kind of... This is a show where half of it I find really appealing and half of it doesn't know what it wants to be. And I'm annoyed by the second half an awful lot, but I have hope for the first half. So 
Then the second season came along, and I think the second season is just awful. I think it's just bad storytelling. It's bad visual storytelling, and that's regardless of Jason Bateman's Emmy win. Basically, for me in the second season, the only thing I liked was Julia Garner's performance, which deserved to win an Emmy. Totally fine. Bad second season. And I was watching the third season, and for the first couple episodes, I was like, okay, it's it's basically more of the same, whatever, I'm just going to make my way through this. And then around episodes four or five, I started being like, okay, there are two or three plot lines I actually really care about here, even if some of them I don't care about at all, and even if they continue to only shoot inside without any light. Seriously, folks, turn on the light. Uh, by the end of the season... I was still loving Julia Garner, who continues to be wonderful. I think this is a great season for Laura Linney. I think it's a wonderful season. I think her performance in the last two or three episodes of the season are as good as just about anything she's ever done. Maybe not anything, because she's Laura Linney. She's awesome. Yeah, uh, and if you haven't seen The Big C, I, one of my all-time favorites. She's tremendous at that. A, a great performance for which she won Emmys, Globes, all sorts of stuff. So... Uh, you know, maybe not the best performance she's ever given, but totally a performance that will be worthy of being recognized come this Emmy season. I think that she and Olivia Coleman will be going head to head for lead drama actress Emmys. Provided the, there is an Emmys. Uh, uh, true, true <laughs> story. story. No, true story. Uh, and we're, we're not there yet. Uh, but yeah, so by the end of the season, even if I would say probably the first season I was 50-50 on it. The second season I was probably like 10-90 in terms of the relationship of things I liked versus I didn't. This season I ended up probably like 60-40 positive. And by the end of the finale, I was like, okay, I want to see what the next season looks like. And I definitely didn't feel like that at the end of season two. So I don't know what to tell people along the lines of if you decided that the second season was a bore, can you just skip over and go to the third? A, that's not the way I watch TV. Y'all know that about me. But B, I wonder how much of what I was surprised to like this season comes out of how much I was disappointed by the second season. Like, if you don't lower your expectations sufficiently by watching the second, will you like the third or not? But I think I think fans of the show and there definitely are fans of the show will be very happy. So so here I am with a not rapturous rave for Ozark season three, but with a positive review for it. And I'm really surprised by that. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's newly launched Now See This newsletter. You can subscribe by clicking on the newsletters tab at the top of THR.com. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we will be joined by Home Before Dark showrunner Dana Fox. You can always subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear your questions, comments, concerns, and nice things too. Uh, and as we've already mentioned several times in this podcast, we are really and truly probably going to be doing mailbag segments of some sort every week for the foreseeable future because we like to hear from you. So if you've got questions, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. Until then, everybody be safe. Everybody be kind to those around you. Everybody wash your hands. And until next week, Leslie. Until next week, stay safe and stay sane.
We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.